0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: Anyone who's ever tried to raise children, whether that's your own children or somebody else's children, will know how much of a multifaceted challenge it is. And if you've never had to raise children, well, just look back on your own childhood and I'm sure you'll understand Well, this week in Australian cinemas, you can see three movies that deal with this challenge in very different ways. There's a Stephen King horror adaptation, a documentary from Alice Springs, and a coming-of-age road movie set in the Pilbara. Hello, this is The Screen Show, and I'm your host, Jason DeRosso. Four interviews coming up in this episode, let's begin with the lead actor of The Boogeyman, a horror movie with Yellow Jacket star Sophie Thatcher playing Sadie, a high school girl grieving the loss of her mother, who lives with her psychologist dad, played by Chris Messina, and a younger sister. The Boogeyman is a haunted house thriller about an entity that latches onto the family and begins to terrorise them. Sophie Thatcher coming up. This may seem a little
0: out there, but when my father passed away, I felt like I could sense him watching over me sometimes. If you pay close enough attention, maybe you start sensing your mom too.
2: What about other things?
0: What other things?
2: I don't know. It's hard to see. It's like
0: a dark thing. I see. Well, when did you start seeing this dark thing? Right after that man died. That makes perfect sense. Okay, so what is it? When there are scary things we don't understand, our minds try to fill in the blanks.
3: It's just like all those spooky monsters you think are hiding under your bed. But we're going to work on that together, okay? So it's not so scary.
1: Sophie Thatcher, welcome to The Screen Show.
3: Nice to meet you.
1: I feel like horror movies are always so grueling on actors. The emotions that you're required to express are so big in so many moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like for you? What's it like for you starring in a in a in a horror film that is so visceral like this one?
3: It was pretty emotionally and physically draining, and I wasn't expecting that. Which is um, people need to rid themselves of the notion that like horror is easy or like horror people don't some people don't take horror seriously but i think we're reaching an era where people are really taking it seriously and realizing that you can explore any element within horror and you can just like go to different depths in horror that you couldn't in something that is a little bit more grounded
1: was there a lot of rehearsal involved for this uh what was the experience like yeah tell me about that
3: yeah we had we were lucky enough and that's the beauty of like doing a movie and working with a director that's passionate because i've been used to this tv show where we just have to go straight into it and you just have to
1: yellow jackets right yeah Yeah, great show Um,
3: thank you but we had rehearsal and we were very keen on just like building a realistic relationship with all the characters because if you don't buy them as a family then you're not going to buy the movie you're not going to want to follow them and their journey so that was like the most important foundation that we had built and I we had done it beforehand and like bonding with Vivian was so easy because she's a little genius. Chris Messina is one of the nicest people ever. It was all it was very natural.
1: Yeah, um Vivian's a wonderful little actress isn't she on I screen. She's, she's adorable. Good. And the dynamic between you as sisters is um you know really recognizable. It's spiky, it's sometimes a little uh, competitive and resentful, but you know yeah. it's, it's sort of full of love. Why do you think horror is has had such a resurgence in what would you say it's the last decade. I'm not sure what, what like time period it would be.
3: People love darkness. People are also just used to the darkness with COVID. And you you'd feel like you'd want an escape. But you also get an escape because it's so far fetched and far from your reality that it doesn't always I mean it's different with this one because it can hit close to home because it's about grief. But it's sometimes nice to go into a horror movie that is so just like that would never happen. Same with yellow jackets, like cannibalism. Like how do you connect to that? You don't.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm just wondering if it is something about the world we live in at the moment, geopolitically, even the, the notion that there's a lot of dark sort of storm clouds around there's wars, yeah. there's you know, COVID and so forth. And I wonder if people find solace in scaring themselves somehow. I think
3: or- it's natural. And I think it's just, I think it's just the most natural thing for people right now. And same for me, like even during my downtime, I'll watch anything dark. <laughs>
1: Did you always want to be an actor?
3: Yeah, probably since I was four. um, I was always um, just any kind of performer, any kind of artist. I was always drawing on the walls. I was singing all the time. I was writing my own stories. It was kind of just about what happened naturally. And I ended up doing plays in Chicago when I was like 10 or something. And I started doing that a lot more than any of the other creative platforms and went that direction
1: were were your parents encouraging of that were they were they artistic
3: yeah my mom is a pianist my dad was a lawyer so my mom had like a very was very musically inclined and pushed that on us and i feel like music is the number one and i also use music to get me into character and it's like very important to create a playlist for a character um but they were always very and i feel like just growing up i had a twin growing up with a twin naturally outcasts you so there's nothing about me that was ever going to be normal so i realized i might as well embrace this (laughs)
1: that's really interesting is it identical twin i mean is there something identical yeah we
3: were yeah it was weird
1: so psychologically what does that do in terms of now you've ended up being a performer was there always some I don't know, maybe there was some sense that growing up you you knew what it was like to sort of maybe be mistaken for someone else or play someone else or you, you're really acutely aware you, of appearances and physicality perhaps.
3: Yeah, I don't think that was ever um, fully in my mind. I think having a twin made me competitive and it, it, it made me aware in the way that like, they could live through things and it would be like me living through it, but not entirely. And But now we've become so different and I'm glad that we're so different. We have our own different artistic outlets. Um, She's not involved
1: in the industry, is she at all, the film industry? No, not she should, right.
3: makes like claymations, music. Um,
1: oh, well, that's cool. Claymations, cool. great.
3: Very cool. Super talented, yeah.
1: When you say competitive, how how – competitive have you had to be so far in your career i mean you're in this huge show yellow jackets you've got the lead in this film um you know has it been difficult have you had to really push hard in auditions and to get these roles
3: i just i feel like i just work as hard as i possibly can and get as close as i can to the material but i had to learn because i've gone through phases in my short-lived career where like i'd go a year without booking anything and i would go to a project and just learn to detach myself from it and not get too close because as soon as you get too close you don't get it which is you know very pessimistic but it's kind of the reality of it it's completely random um so how did you
1: get this do you think did you have that um, cool detachment to a degree
3: i mean to some extent as soon as you don't want as soon as you're detached things i mean that's random advice and it doesn't work all the time, um, I think they'd seen me in yellow jackets, so I was very, I was very lucky, and it was very random that I got that. And I think, they thought that, I could portray Sadie in a, realistic way.
1: Final question: What was the what was Sadie's playlist? Can you give me a few, few tunes? Um, oh,
3: I'm trying to think. Somebody else asked that. Um, there was a lot of, Brian Eno, Harold Budd. Um, for some reason, Harold Budd he rest in peace he makes me cry more than anybody and it It just has this like sense of nostalgia and i think i was trying to tap into that headspace um i can't think there was just a lot of ambient on it and i think that also is the most grounding for me and can calm me down the most
1: yeah and great for a troubled kind of intellectually smart kid
3: yeah. Yeah.
1: Teen. She was yeah.
3: definitely she was listening to different stuff. She was listening to in the uh AirPods I had my bloody Valentine playing when I was walking through school and I was like <laughs>
1: Cool. Hey, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Sophie Thatcher. Now to the Boogeyman's director, Rob Savage, who, after a couple of low budget horror movies exploring the formal possibilities of computer desktops and dash cams acquits himself well here, finally with a budget that can afford him to choreograph more elaborate setups in a dark wood-panelled house with things that go bump in the night and send its occupants nearly crazy. Rob Savage, welcome to The Screen Show. Hello, how are you doing? Good, good. Um, I was wondering, you must have been a fan of Stephen King coming in onto this project. Did you have a favourite adaptation?
2: You know what? Until until recently, I thought the the greatest Stephen King adaptation was The Shining. Which good choice. You know, Steve would Steve would disagree, but I love I love that movie. Yeah. yeah. But then you know, recently I watched uh, Harry De Palma's movie, and I just think it's the most incredible movie. It's it's so stylish and scary, and and yet like really way more compassionate than I remembered. It really. Um, it really got the kind of humanity of the of the novel in a way that I just didn't. I just didn't remember from the first time watching it. I think I just remembered the bombast and the the, the burning uh, school hall at the end, but I didn't remember the kind of tenderness of it.
1: Well, Stephen King's a very tender writer, I find as well. I mean, he's a very compassionate writer, and, and I get the feeling that if I mean, I mean, there's a real there's a there's a, a realism in mm-hmm. in his relationships, especially his you know uh his his stories about outsiders and families and all of that um yes. we, and and if you don't get that right it's really hard i think
2: yeah no that was a big thing that was a big thing for us because we you know we 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 really were taking the short story and doing it in one scene at the beginning of the movie and the rest was extrapolation we were just building outwards you know using the kind of mythology that he set he set out in the short story but a lot of it was invention so we were constantly having to go back to like what are the one what is what is the short story about? And how can we kind of scratch at that same thing? And two, how can we make this feel like it can sit shoulder to shoulder with all of those great Stephen King adaptations and with his writing? And it was it was really his humanity we kept coming back to, that we wanted to make sure that even though this is a film about a creature that's trying to kill your children, it's a very bleak um, movie with a very bleak setup, we wanted to feel like there was a glimmer of humanity and hope there that that feels true to his writing. You've met him, haven't you? Did you meet him during the production? I haven't met him. I've only met him virtually. So, so it's all been email, phone, text, and uh, I've yet to meet him in person. And what's what have those in interactions been like? Amazing. He's been so supportive. He he uh, he read an early draft of the script, uh, gave some great notes, really loved it. And then he was kind of being a cheerleader for the film even before we before we'd finished shooting it. He he was doing a Press store for his latest book. I can't remember what it was called, but he was um uh shouting out about our script, saying that he'd read it and it was an example of a great uh you know adaptation of one of his short stories. Um so that, you know, we'd 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 hear about him shouting out our movie while we were making it, and it gave us this great morale boost and a couple of times through production. And then finally, you know, it was time to show him the movie. We had a cut that was almost ready that we were pretty happy with, and we Rented uh, a cinema in May, in his favourite cinema, and he went to see it with a bucket of popcorn, and and uh, apparently jumped several times throughout it. And he sent this this lovely, almost essay about how much he loved the movie, and 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 shouted out various departments and performances, and uh, ended it by saying, "You know, they'd be idiots to put this on the small screen. This has to go theatrical." And that that really was the tipping point towards pivoting us from being a streaming movie to um to eventually getting this wide release
1: i imagine imagine it helps yeah um yeah now you've in previous you know outings as a director you've worked with very modest budgets um Mm. and within formal limitations you know film like dash cam host desktop kind of movie um what did it feel like to suddenly have many of those limitations taken away on this film um where you can you know where you've got a camera and a cinematographer where you can sort of move the camera and and mm-hmm. and do much more ambitious things than perhaps you were able to do
2: in your previous couple of films i mean the first thing i had to uh, to do is just not go mad with power so I, I planned a lot of stuff at the beginning j- just to be extravagant just because we could afford bits of kit and, and we can build the set in a way that, that would allow me to do these elaborate shots and then slowly as i started to work on the script with Mark, and as I'd start to work through it and storyboard the movie, it became clear that really this wanted to be a bit more subdued, and that that leaning into the same things—the same things you're leaning into on a movie like Host, which is the character and the audience experience—actually, um, it becomes much more about how can you invest these resources in telling that story as best as possible. So, we, you know, we spent a lot of money building the house that most of the movie takes place in, that's all constructed, that's not a real location. So that was built to the specifications of my storyboards. I wanted certain scares to work in certain ways. And it was amazing to be able to construct these spaces exactly as I'd imagined them. Um, and then on top of that, we had a fully CG creature, which was, which was a large part of our budget. But, um, yeah, I think when you, when you realize you can do almost anything in the world, it becomes about, well, what's the, what's the right thing to do as opposed to what's the most flashy.
1: You mentioned, I think, Mark Heyman there, who, who was the screenwriter who wrote Black Swan. Um, yes. I'm just curious about, there's, there's, we've got Scott Beck and Brian Woods who together wrote A Quiet Place, who are kind of listed yeah. also as part of the adaptation. So you're, you're just mentioning Mark there, reminded me that I was curious about how the writing on this project mm. worked. Did, did all three of them work together or did
2: Mark Heyman come, come in later? I only worked with Mark when I came on board. Beck and Woods had had done a draft, which was in a lot of lot of ways is different from from the movie that we ended up shooting. But they'd already kind of cracked the backbone of the thing by figuring out how to uh, build from the short story. They 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 came up with this idea of Lester Billings, the character from the short story, almost being like a harbinger of doom that comes in and sets the whole story in motion and introduces us to this family. And changes perspective to Sadie, the daughter from the father? No. So they so their their draft was focusing on the father and it was much more set in the world of adults. And I kind of, you know, and, and there was lots of lots of great stuff in their draft, but I the version of the boogeyman that I was excited to do was more about um the sisters, the, the and and in their draft it was a brother and a sister, and, and and me and Mark made it um made it sisters and kind of reframed it to be about about those guys. Um there's lots of lots of great moments that are taken from the Beck and woods draft and then i came in and and worked with mark i i bought in mark to to um to to get us to the to the version that you see on screen and we worked together for six seven months and then got the green light based on that script
1: yeah and of course black swan being a film very much about female psychology and so forth that must have been was it, yeah. he i imagine he felt like the right writer for the job in that case
2: yeah and i think he um he shared the same ambition for the movie as me that 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 we wanted it to be you know it's a movie called the boogeyman a lot of people are going to roll their eyes but we wanted it to feel um weighty and like the drama was really um kind of authentically written and the characters came from a place of of authenticity as well as the scares being you know it had had to deliver on the scares but it also wanted to feel classy and uh and and you're bolder than than maybe people would expect from a movie called the boogeyman
1: and sophie thatcher's a wonderful cast for this you know to carry this film as well
2: yeah no she's she's phenomenal and and i didn't realize how much of this movie she had to hold on her shoulders she was she was in every single day she's in most shots of this movie and she's you know she's operating at this kind of level of intensity day in day out it was really a huge undertaking thanks very much rob it's been a pleasure appreciate it thank you rob savage
1: who directs The Boogeyman well, I think. Although, I have to disagree with him about that screenwriting decision to shift the focus of the story to the eldest daughter, Sadie. I haven't read the Stephen King story, but he is a very allegorical writer, and that allegory of grief here is perhaps a little too easy to decipher too soon. I imagine the mystery of this entity might have been more haunting if the story had remained the story of a single dad who's just become a widower, trying to work out what is terrifying his children, the irrational nature of their fear. His inability to pacify or reassure them is still in this film, but it's no longer the prime focus of the story. And I don't think that is where the focus should have been. Then again, Sophie Thatcher is great on screen and she is the big draw card for this movie, especially for a younger audience. The Boogeyman is out everywhere this week. Now, the focus definitely shifts to the adults in the next film I'll be speaking about. It's a new documentary by Alice Springs-based filmmaker Penny Macdonald that takes its title from its main subject, Audrey Napananka, an actor, artist, activist and caregiver who, along with her Sicilian husband, Santo, has raised and continues to raise a swathe of children. Macdonald, who made the film with her director and cinematographer, son, Dylan River, has produced a wide lens view of remarkable people in a remarkable time. There is so much on screen here to reflect on. The continuing struggle to pass on traditional culture in First Nations communities, the intergenerational effects of poverty and colonization, and Santo's story as a migrant to Australia. The film doesn't shy away, and in fact benefits from the messiness of it all. Life is messy after all. And the result is beautiful, Sometimes ugly, inspiring, and sometimes disturbing. And Audrey and Santo are an amazing couple. McDonald is a veteran producer and director, and this film is travelling the country. She's coming up. <laughs>
0: I'm poor. I'm poor. She said
3: she had 32 or 34 kids she grew up.
2: What do you got?
3: Tauris. Not Tauris. Jason. J- Jason and Lenora.
0: Not <laughs> Lenora, I'm Muriel. Something happened to me. Who got to look
4: after the kids?
1: Penny MacDonald, welcome to The Screen Show. Thank you. Why did you want to make this film?
4: Well, Audrey I've known for a long time and she's acted in lots of films, you know, Samson, Delilah, Rapid Fence, et cetera. So I knew that she wasn't shy of a camera and I've been a friend for a very long time and I saw the life she was leading and I just thought, wow, she's just so resilient and so interesting. I'll turn the camera on to her.
1: She's one of these people who you can see in her eyes that there's a sort of steely determination, I think. There's a real acuity there.
4: Absolutely.
1: Which the camera loves, um, but, you, you know, and I think that that's borne out in the actions and, and her behaviour in the film as well and the things she does. Tell me about what, who she is and, and, what, and, and what side of her you wanted in particular to, to showcase in this film.
4: Well, she's a mother to many people. She with her Sicilian partner, Santo, they've brought up lots of children, some from birth for a long time, others for a few years when they needed a safe home. And I think that mothering aspect and the fact that fire in her belly that she'll fight for rights. I've seen her experience a lot of racism. You know, she, she'll she take people on. She always goes, well, I'm going to go to ABC or I'm going to go to the newspaper. She won't just sit back and take racism from people but i i just thought she was just such a fighter as well as the mothering being a mother myself you know uh when she um eventually told me about what had happened to her children early on plus i saw the two children removed from her care and i was just shocked i thought what if that had happened to me um or to another mother and just the way she dealt with it was majestic actually
1: this is a film that is very much about you know raising kids and how to raise them. It's set in Alice Springs, which lately has been the city that's become you know a symbol of let's put it this way dysfunction, described in many ways. But but it's become the centre of so much media coverage in recent months. How do you think this film? How do you hope this film enters into that discourse? I mean, how do you how do you hope audiences? are informed by this film around those issues that have been so so heavily covered in the news recently in very different
4: ways? Well, I would hope that a broad Australian audience sees this film and that it gives them an insight into how complex life is for a person like Audrey. And there are many other grandmothers who are facing similar hurdles as, as Audrey. And that might give greater understanding. I think we live in a schism between... Um, many parts of society—it's not one schism—but you know there, there are people who who benefit and can do well in the in the Australian um, system that we live in, and there are people that are there are people that are quite challenged as well. And how do we make Australia fairer for all? And I hope this film leaves people with something to think about that, and actually maybe take some action just on a personal level, if nothing else. The other
1: news story that's you know, really um, drawn attention recently as well is a news story around Indigenous artists and white people who work with them and that whole, there's, there are allegations about white people finishing off Indigenous artists' work and so forth. This is not a film that deals with that. However, Audrey is also an artist and it just struck me as well that this is one of these films that um, also augments people's understanding of, something that they they may have heard about in the news in a completely different context. You know, here's, yeah, I mean, she's quite a remarkable woman doing all this advocacy, raising kids as a grandmother and as a great auntie and so forth, and yet she's also uh, making this art. What kind of artist is she? What's her profile like?
4: Um, she's got a, a bit of a national profile. She sells art. Um, It's usually around. Well, it's around stories that she has the right to tell. One of them in the film is is Wadabi or Goanna story, which is the story of Mount Thea, which is the land she's from, to the northwest of Alice Springs. Um, But she's she paints all the time. She really enjoys painting, and she enjoys seeing people enjoy her painting, to purchase her painting, and to hang it on their walls gives her great delight, I guess. Um, And it's a way of earning extra money, like. No, Audrey, when I met Audrey, she was working. She was employed for a lot of her adult life, but since she's not been working and raising so many children, the children she's raised, they haven't been official foster carers, so they don't actually get extra money. They get merely the minimum, and so the paintings is a way to augment her income.
1: Tell me about her and Santo's relationship. How would you describe it? I mean, the film points out that Santo migrates to Australia in the early 70s. He has an older brother. They, the family clearly had an Italian restaurant in, in Alice Springs. And early on in the film, Audrey says that her, the kids they raised together are raised in traditional way, in the Australian way and in the Sicilian way or the Italian way, I think she says. But anyway, there's that notion of being quite a cultural hybrid of influences in their household. How would you describe their relationship?
4: Well, I think it's a very interesting relationship and it stood the test of time. I mean, um, they've been together since the mid-'80s and they're still together. And I think because both cultures love families and children, um, the sort of Mediterranean cultures, the... Um, First Nations cultures. So I think that that's something they have in common, that they both really love children and grandchildren. Like Santo carries around um, photos of all the children they've raised in a very thick sort of wallet in his pocket. He cuts them down and he just loves remembering all those children. And when you see him with little children, you can see they just gravitate towards him and, um, and Audrey as well. Like at the moment, because we've just had the premiere in Alice Springs, some of the extended family have come in here and they're all really happy to see Audrey and Santo.
1: Santo as well. You've got this wonderful footage of him as a younger man wearing a pinstripe white suit, looking like someone from a Visconti film. (laughs) It was... um, What remarkable footage... And not someone from you know that you'd associate with then a lifestyle out not out bush because you know Alice Springs is a big town but but you know what I mean he goes from having this white suit thing a very prim looking guy who's yeah walked out of a Visconti film as I said to um, a still elegant man I should say but um, but but you know clearly settled in in Alice and going bush at times and yeah
4: yes I mean he's a snappy dresser. I think that's what made him stand out to Audrey, because she's a snappy dresser too. Um, you should see her at the at the screenings. You know, she always looks gorgeous. And when I first met her years ago, she was the one who, when I left this remote community I was living in, she'd be saying, "Can you buy, you know, this hair dye or this makeup or or whatever for her?" So she's always been like that. I think that's something they have in common that they they like to, you know, have fun dressing dressing well. And Santa always goes downtown in a suit. Um
1: was it difficult getting their agreement to be in this film because you know it's it's there's you know one particular character here who's who's a niece who's in jail you know it's it's a warts and all film at times and you've got an amazing access to a hearing in court where a judge outlines some very serious allegations of violence I won't go into that, and not against them, I should add, but against this niece who's currently incarcerated. So, you know, some difficult moments for the family are captured in this film. How did you negotiate around all of that?
4: It's a case of keeping on negotiating with a documentary like this. Like I initially spoke to Audrey about making this documentary and she agreed but then I filmed over a long time, you know, almost 10 years. So not all the time, obviously, but when things were happening. So each time it was sort of renegotiating. And then even through the edit, um, the family looked at many different cuts of the film and everything is, you know, that Audrey particularly and and her close friends, because a lot of it's in language. So we had interpreters and advisors that are Walbury's, uh, Walbury family. Um, so it was a case of renegotiating all the time. But Mm. also I was very aware of whatever we put in the film, once it's there, it's there into the future. So I was most concerned about the children and what was in there about the children who are now 15, but when we started filming they were four. So, um, you know, I've just been sensitive about considering all of that and and the children have looked at it before it was uh, circulated anywhere.
1: Were there things that... You know you did have to remove or 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 or, or were certain things more difficult to negotiate, or how how did you find that process?
4: No, it wasn't really difficult. It was a case of more thinking it through even before presenting um, versions to 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 them. Um, mm-hmm. and you know it was just a case of what we could do as well, because filming over so long, one challenge was the children were growing up. So in terms of a narrative arc, you can't sort of have them tall, then small, older then younger. And also, one of the characters kept getting different haircuts. So, you know, sometimes there were emotional scenes that you wanted in a different order, and you just couldn't do that because the audience would get totally confused.
1: I'm wondering about the themes and how you reflect on the themes of dislocation and uprootedness. I mean, obviously, we've got Mount Theo, which is the traditional sort of land of 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 of, of Audreys, and it's some eight eight hours away, I think, by car. So it's reasonably distant from from Alice. Of course, Santo comes from Sicily, and early on in the film, she talks about how much he loves Sicily and is sort of attached to that. And I'm wondering about those themes of uprootedness and and how you think they play out in this on-screen relationship between an Indigenous woman and a non-Indigenous man who isn't of an English-speaking background. Is there a different sort of dimension to that relationship um, when it's an Indigenous person and a migrant?
4: I think there is. I think... um... You know, he's a long way from his roots, but he has one brother and, um, you know, they've got nieces and nephews that are here on his side of the family in, in Alice Springs. But also the ties that Audrey feels to her country are so deep. They're quite, um, you know, they're they're about spirituality. They're about belonging. They're, it's where her forebears were, and you see some of that in the story of the film. Yes. Um, so it's a different sort of belonging and it's interesting for me coming in that mix Because I'm, you know, my, my forebears are migrants to Australia many, many, many years ago And then I've moved to Mbantua, Alice Springs, which is Aranda country And so we're all living on Aranda country And we respect and acknowledge that So it's it's interesting in terms of the sense, sense of belonging um, Yes, the sense of belonging is, is different for different people
1: and how do you react to the recent coverage of especially juvenile crime in Alice Springs, but other other places, I, I guess, in the territory in particular, as someone who's made this film, which is so thoughtful and does not shy away from the complexities of, I suppose, the human stories behind headlines like this?
4: I think every um, town or many towns in remote Australia have similar issues. It's just that they're focused on these towns um, partly because of racism and partly because of the challenges, you know, we're living betwixt and between cultures and ways of being. Um, Alice Springs is a much more positive place to live than the media portray. There are challenges, but they're not unique to Alice Springs. And what we're hoping to do with this documentary is to open people's minds and hearts up and to actually um, take some action to make things better, Through whether that's through writing letters to get systemic changes into policies and child removals, which is at a higher rate for First Nations children than ever before, that children are not with their birth family or not even with close relations, Um, and also incarceration, which is, you know, totally out of proportion, like uh, First Nations children are 5% of the population of children, yet they're nearly 50% of the children in detention around Australia, that's not just here. So we're hoping that people might actually help some of the programs that we're partnering with, which are First Nations led, um, because I think people like Audrey, they know what's needed. They know the solutions, but they don't always have the resources to bring those solutions to life.
1: Penelope, I know you're traveling with this film around the country. Um, you won't be everywhere with it, but you're certainly traveling quite extensively. So good luck with it. And, uh, I hope the screenings, especially with the Q and A's go well. And, um, And that the themes of this film and the way you've approached them reach as many people as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Filmmaker Penny MacDonald, do get out to see the documentary Audrey Napananka. It is making its way around the country. Check the film's website for details. That's Audrey Napananka. Google it. It'll come up. Uh, The list of different screenings includes Q&A screenings with Penny and some of them with Audrey and Santo they will definitely be ones to uh, try and get tickets to. Okay, finally this week, to the Australian feature Sweet As, which releases wide across the country, a coming-of-age road movie about a young indigenous girl, Mara, living in the northwest of Western Australia with a struggling single mum. Mara is sent by her uncle, a local cop, to a camp for youth from troubled backgrounds, which is actually a photography safari. They all get in a little bus and go out bush. Children like her, well, there's three others on this camp, are given each of them a film camera and encouraged to commune with nature and each other by slowing down and taking note of what they see, paying real attention to what's around them. This is a big-hearted film, a story of hope and generosity in difficult circumstances with a lead performance, along with some wonderful outback landscapes that you will fall in love with. I certainly did. Writer director Jub Claire is coming up to tell you more.
2: Hey, Sean.
3: Sean! Sean, can you hear me? Did you just leave him? We have one hour until it gets dark. How would you feel if we abandoned you? Mum! Been there,
4: done that. I don't need any of you. Hey, hey, hey. What's oh. next after this, Myra? What do you want?
3: Hello, ancestors. Early girls.
0: What does the photo say about me?
2: You're strong and brave. It
3: said every picture has a story. Ah! <laughs> Maybe we have one.
1: Job Claire, welcome to the Screen Show.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. Very, very excited.
1: Tell me about this story and how, I mean, it's clearly autobiographical, but how does this moment in your life make it to the screen?
0: Oh, my goodness. Um, You know, how does it make it to the screen was a very, very long journey in itself, but all stemming from that moment I picked up a camera as a young 14-year-old on a photo safari Driving along the dusty Pilbara roads, you know, with a with a group of motley kids and some fantastic carers, and then kind of propelling me into that world of of storytelling, which was already in my culture, you know, since the first sunrise, with singing and dancing and painting and oral stories and that. Um, But this was just such a beautiful, new, exciting medium for me as a as a young adult, a teen, impressionable, um, you know, coming of age. That it really helped kind of spearpoint me into where I think I wanted to be. And then I was very, very lucky because my uncle Jimmy Chai wrote Brand New Day and I went touring like straight after the photo safari. I literally went to join my mum who was in rehearsals only a couple of days into rehearsals on Brand New Day. So I just traveled with that from 14 to 18, you know, school, travel, school, travel. And literally that was the end for me. I was never going to do anything else but the arts. So. Being in the arts all those years, going to Whopper, traveling around the country with theatre, um, and then finding my way to writing and directing and be, being behind the camera—not as much as in front of it anymore. And so, and then one day, my bestie and one of my besties, Liz Carney, who's also my um, producer on Sweet As, uh, she's like, "We need to do a feature together," which we've been talking about. And she goes, "What about that yarn you told me about that photo safari you went on?" <laughs> I went, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So we really um, got our thinking brains together and I did a little bit more research on what the actual trip was. And the most amazing thing happened, I saw that it was for at-risk kids, which I had no idea about when I was on the trip. And it was the most amazing kind of cathartic realization, a bit sad, a bit joyous, a bit, wow, Those that trip was really special then, wasn't it? Because kumbaya, tell me your feelings.
1: Yeah, you didn't realise you'd been put on the trip because for some reason or other you were seen as as at risk.
0: No idea. I do remember the first day of seeing all the kids that were selected going, oh, they're a naughty, what am I doing here? <laughs> but it wasn't about being juvie detentioned and that. It was kids that were on the cusp of going that way or that way. And there were things going on in our lives, I imagine. I just know what was going on in my life that just put us on the radar of people that cared.
1: Because how old were you? How old were you at the time? 14. You you said, yeah, 14. Yeah,
0: 14. The character I made, 16. I needed them to be a little bit more worldly, older, you know, especially for all the things that happen in the film.
1: Well, there's that that coming of age thing about um, the two girls who are part of this group are both on the cusp of being, well, one – uh, let's put it this way. one one has started having boyfriends and so so forth and and the other the lead character hasn't and and of course that's a classic sort of coming of age thing isn't it you know there yes. were desires happening and you're not really necessarily yeah, that's sure sexual of
0: awakening yeah, in, in, yeah. in young adults that some people think you know some people pretend it doesn't happen even though we've all been through it and we know the age that we all do and and you can either kind of help being guided through that properly without predators, <laughs> or um, you know, just a you know, it's just it's a very convoluted, complicated thing of got coming of age, you know, and what that all entails emotionally, physically, spiritually, you know, the whole gamut. And I wanted to explore.
1: Yeah, the film, I think, does that in quite a well-rounded way and you do have your sort of predators and, and, you know, in the film, characters who perhaps don't have the best intentions at heart and others that are quite noble and there's some um, emotional fumbling that goes goes on, um, which is to be expected as well and quite, quite quite endearing to see. I love that. Emotional yeah. fumbling. It's definitely That's emotional. Um, a few <laughs> cross wires. Um, tell, tell me, I'm really interested in, in this idea of the photo safari and what it taught you, because clearly for these characters and Mura especially, I mean, these are kids who grow up with a camera in their pockets, right? They can take endless amounts of photos. Um, and yet here they are with old school celluloid photos. There's only 24 that you can take in a roll. Did did you have a similar culture shock when you went on the safari that you thought, wow, I can't I've got to be careful with these images. I've got to think about them.
0: Well, I think back in my day <laughs> when I did go on the photo safari, things were slower. Water wasn't bottled. <laughs> there was no internet. So having the cameras It wasn't a surprise that we had to be selective because you were back then, you know, even with the conversations you had, because most of them were face to face, not a text message, you know, and, and I think you were more considered and there were consequences more immediate because you were there in the, in the moment. Not, you know, a lot of people finish relationships via text, which just blows my mind away anyway (laughs) these days, but. I think what I loved about that trip is that it was the first time I'd ever been away from my family unit, and I was asked questions as an autonomous human being, and I had to start thinking for myself. That was a big moment for me, and having this amazing freedom and trust to just take these cameras and go, go wondering, like... I think I don't know what it is. I I do, actually. It was this sense of freedom that really opened up my mind and my heart and my imagination and the future for me, what is out there, what's beyond here. And I really wanted that to resonate in our film that, yeah, you know, you can get a camera these days and take 55,000 photos that just get stored on your device whichever one it is, that you'll never see again. You know, I miss photo albums. I miss things up on the wall. And um, I just wanted our kids to slow down and really look at things in a different way.
1: And there's so so much beauty to look at in this film. However, they're not just drawn to landscape, they're drawn to figures in landscape too, which I, which I really like. There's an emotional storytelling element. To the images that we see Mora, the lead character in the film, take, she takes images of landscape but her her fellow voyagers her companions on this safari are always in this landscape and she puts these little and you 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 have these texts is sort of um that you superimpose on the images that are her little thoughts about what the image is you know a couple of words here and there you know alone is one of them yeah when she takes a, a shot of a boy on the safari who's particularly at risk from self-harm, let's say. Yeah. She's great, by the way. Shantae Barnes-Cohen, she's so lovely in the film. Her, um, I mean, I know she's sort of played older and tougher and, you know, fiercer characters before, but she is so, like the title of the film, Sweet As, she's so sweet. And I don't mean that in a saccharine way. Yeah. Tell me about her and casting her and getting her, you know, in this role.
0: I was so lucky... That she was available because, of course, she is. Everybody is wants to work with Shantae because she's just brings so much to so many different characters that she's played. And I had to do it all for all of my cast via Zoom because of COVID. I couldn't see anybody. They couldn't summon, you know, Shantae, of course, living over in um, South Australia, and and other cast members. Everything was locked down. We all remember the days. And um, but I, there was just something about the way that she presented herself on Zoom that made me go, well, if she can do that on this camera, imagine what she could do on ours. And and I can already feel something coming from this link um, to get her here with me. And she was so gentle um, and very, very shy, almost too shy. I was like, oh, God, am I going to be able to direct her? I was like, is she going to be okay with me? But when I got her on set, the first day I met her in person was, you know, in pre-production. We just had this immediate connection. I just I burst in tears basically when I saw her because we'd been talking for so long and I'd been writing this film for seven years um, that when I saw her, I was so overwhelmed and she was overwhelmed but, I, you know, in a different way and, and she was like, I feel really honoured that I'm, I'm getting to play you. And I went, oh, no, my darling, you are not playing me here's the script, it's now yours. I, I gave that to all of my cast, actually, and just saying, this story is yours, just now let's create Mudder together. So it was that collaboration and her intelligence and empathy and heart and respect, it just, you know, it was just beautiful to work with and it resonated for the rest of the cast. The, ca- the rest of the cast was so beautiful Uh, We had two non-Indigenous actors that had never acted before and never in my entire life, in my profession, had I been on a set where the two young Indigenous cast could upskill the non-Indigenous cast. I was so overwhelmed. I kind of overheard it and I was like, oh, it's happening. (laughs) The world is changing.
1: And And they're good too. They're all, I mean, they're all good. I wanted to ask you about these themes, because in a way, in this episode of The Screen Show, everything I'm talking about is in a way about raising children, and in different ways, and there's so much talk, and there has been so much talk recently about raising Indigenous kids and the debate of the stolen children a stolen generation is is always present. It's, it's such there's so yes. much unresolved around that,
0: and it and, continued.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, so, um, well, because in in this episode of the Screenshot, I'm also talking about I don't know if you've seen it, but a great documentary about Audrey uh, Napananka made by Penny McDonald, about a woman in Alice Springs. In that film, also the themes are about raising children. So, yeah, what I did you want to what What did you want to say in this film about the role of Parents, extended family, carers of the type that run this f- photography safari. I mean, these are there's such strong themes in the film, and I, and I feel like it's a film that that has a lot to say about how you approach adolescence.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because there are so many themes in there. Um, there's generational trauma. Um, talking to the adult cast, Grace and and Uncle Ian, you know, they. Coming, even finding out where they're coming from and that one of their parents is from the stolen generation, and Grace having that disconnection of a parent who's never been had their parents, therefore doesn't know how to parent, no good examples, how that translates to the next generation, how then all the socioeconomic, you know, third world poverty kind of environments that a lot of Indigenous families are in, how that translates then to how vices come into your life to deal with the systematic racism, the continued oppression. There's so much there, but it's just distilled so much into a look that I know a lot of Indigenous women came up to me after screenings and went, your film had me, but when it broke me was that one look from Grace at the end because I know that look. I've had that look in my eyes or I've seen family members have that look in their eyes when they're trying to say sorry for something that's much bigger than what they've become.
1: And it's grace is. And we're talking cinema. about grace is the character played by. It's the mom. Yeah, yeah. Nari the mother, Pigram. The so mother, beautifully yes, played Pigram. by
0: Pigram. Anari Pigram.
1: Tasma Walton, as well as this, as the lead adult on the safari, plays a very interesting character. She does. Some, someone who doesn't know her country. Um, yes. Tell me about the character played by Carlos. We've got this, the other adult running the safari is is a character from Nicaragua. And so there are themes in his backstory. I won't reveal them, but, you know, he's in some ways alienated from where he's from, certainly uprooted. So there are these themes running through the the theme with all the kids, really, in a way. And this deliberate uprooting is kind of an initiation as well. It's to toughen them. It's to give them independence and all of that. I was curious because the other australian film i'm talking about in this episode deals with a you know relationship between an indigenous woman and and a sicilian migrant that's her lifelong partner and i'm just curious about what happens what you think goes on in relationships between indigenous and non-indigenous people when the non-indigenous aren't from that english-speaking background they're sort of migrants themselves is there a particular quality you wanted to bring to the fore
0: i think especially international first nations people they have a really beautiful understanding. If they've come from similar oppression, they have a really beautiful understanding of our First Nations people here.
1: Ah, So he's a mob. First Nations character.
0: Yeah, he's Nicaraguan. Yeah, he's a from Nicaragua, Chile, which Carlos, is, his background is yes. Cuban, Chilean and Nicaraguan. And especially that, exactly as you said, his journey, what he tells us around the campfire about how he got to travelling around, you know, very much from oppression. That's why I really wanted to cast around that as well as seeing somebody that would come into this world with their own lived experience and really understand the importance of what it is to guide young adults through that. And he's only 21. The character's only 21, so he's a baby as well, you know. He's still growing and learning, but there's something about the European, or sorry, not just European, but the international experience that makes them a little bit more, not so cocooned like Australians are, to what is really out there. Unless you go and search it and understand it and and, and take the time to figure out what's going on in, around the world and not just in your backyard, um, you start to kind of see the bigger picture, naturally, <laughs> um, which I think international travellers and and people escaping oppression themselves share with us and can lend a, a different dimension, additional layers to what that character needs to do, what their life journey is and, and their, how they play that in our world.
1: Job, it's such a sweet film. There are just, you know, so many layers of well, so many layers in the film, let's put it that way, and there's some very bitter layers within that, but it's a credit to you that you've put them all together in such a sweet package, which is not saccharine. Um, thank you very much for coming on and speaking to me about it.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it's an absolute pleasure, and I hope all, all of your audience enjoys it when they go to see it.
1: Job Clare, director and co-writer of Sweet As, which opens wide this week in Australian cinemas. Go see it. Time to go. Before I do, though, a quick mention of another film you should definitely track down, which deals with similar themes to the films I've spoken about in this episode. It's called Saint-Omer. It was France's entry into the Academy Awards this year. It's by Senegalese-French writer, director Alice Diop. It's a courtroom drama, a tragedy about a young woman who commits a heinous crime explored in a very sophisticated and formally astute way. It is captivating and very thought-provoking, St. Omer. Go see it. Thanks to producer Sarah Corbett, as always, and thanks to the ABC RN sound engineers as well. I'm Jason DeRosso. This has been The Screen Show. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review. I'll see you next time.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.